All right. Well, we have made it to the end of a sermon series this morning. Well, we haven't made it yet, but this is the last installment in the sermon series titled Love Handles, which I said, finally, I'm an expert at something I'm preaching about. And uh, we're going to look, we've looked at all kinds of aspects of life that God's love can handle. We've looked at sin and guilt and fear. We looked at uh, suffering and tragedy. And uh, I'm trying to think what we did last week. That's terrible. Doubt. Thank you. I, I just doubted myself that I could remember that. No, but we looked at doubt last week. That God's love can handle anything that emerges in our lives. And as we've looked at that, we've been mostly... Uh, centered in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. But I wanted to conclude the series by looking at probably the most famous chapter uh, in the Bible, one of two at least. Psalm 23 is up there. And then um, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'll just say this. This is a more difficult passage to preach from than most. It, in one sense, it sort of preaches itself, and you'll see that as we read through it. And in another sense, it, it assumes the context of the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It does not explicitly state the content of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, I want you to keep in mind that this is a passage that's part of a larger context of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And let's just say that this church had a lot of problems. There was a lot of discord in the church in Corinth. And ironically, I, I, I read this passage, or this passage is read often uh, when I do weddings. It's a very common passage for brides and grooms to pick to be read at their wedding. The funny part of that is it was written as a rebuke. It was written as a description of of what not to do if you're living together and you want harmony in your Christian relationships. And, And... it's funny that that's read at weddings because those sweet little couples that are getting married have no clue the conflict that's coming for them down the road. They have no idea. And, and so they pick this passage and I just kind of laugh to myself because no one else thinks it's funny. And, but knowing they are going to need these words when life happens. And so I want to invite you into uh, this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the whole chapter. It's often called the love chapter. And see if you don't agree with me that uh, this is quite an elaborate description in most places of what not to do if we want to live in harmony with others. So from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak... In the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. So usually when I, when I do a wedding with, with a couple that I, I know to any extent, I'll tell the bride and groom, okay, I'm going to read back through some of these attributes of love and what it is and what it is not, and I want you to raise your hand if you think that applies more to you than it does to your soon-to-be spouse, right? And so then you find the bride and groom waving at each other when you say, Patient. Love is patient. Which one of you needs that more? Right? We all do. Um, love is kind. That's usually the husband that has to raise his hand at that one, but uh, not always. Um, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. And you just kind of go through the list, and it, it very quickly you realize, like, I'm not very good at any of these. Like, I can be kind when I have to be, right? Or if it's somebody I like, I can be kind. That's easy. Um, but patient? It's not really my thing. So, I suppose the question for all of us is, how do we how do we access love like this? How do we tap in to a source that is greater than our beginning point? Because if it was me standing where the groom is, my hand would go up at darn near 
every one of those. And so if I can just sort of remind us that this is written in a, in a larger context, as I referred to before, and Paul, the apostle who's writing this letter, is essentially saying, look, y'all, y'all are terrible at getting along with each other. You're really, you're really a mess. What you need is to be um, brought down to earth to where the cross sits, and you need to look up and realize that you're only standing before God and each other is based on what he did for you there on that cross. That is the great equalizer of our humanity. So that when we come together in this place, it does not matter what age you are, what gender you are, what social class you're in, what racial background you have, what cultural background you have, what level of education you have, what kind of job you have. None of that matters. We have been made completely equal at the foot of that cross. We all need that sacrifice equally. And so the the claiming of God's love for our lives begins there at the foot of that cross. And so from there, Paul can say, these are the things that I want you to sort of focus on. And he begins by, if I can put this in these words, telling us that we must make love the main thing in our lives. That because God showed his love to us through Jesus Christ, we must make love the main thing. So as we look at these words and what that means we first see Paul telling us that we have to allow love to shade everything we do. You know, he talks about speaking eloquently or having prophetic powers or the ability to understand mystery or incredible knowledge or deep faith or sacrifice or any of these great attributes, if we can have all of those things, but we don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Love is the starting point for all that is meaningful in life. So we must allow love to shade our words and our understanding of ourselves and others. Whether that understanding comes through knowledge or by faith. Love has to shade all of it. So we allow love to shade everything we do, and we allow love to shade everything we have. So, Craig, can I use you as an example?
It is very open-ended, but if I, if I give, and this applies to you as well, Nancy, actually, so it's obviously a good thing. It's obviously a good attribute. So if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So if I can put it this way, by every measurable standard, the two of you are crazy. Okay? You have a ranch in Seguin, Texas, that's right on the piece of water that everybody wants to be on. Let's look across the lake at all the development along that stretch. And you're giving it away, right? You're not selling it. You're not making a profit. You're not even breaking even. You're, you're giving it away. And the only reason to do that is love. And, and God, for whatever reason, has put a, a deep-rooted compassion and love in your hearts for the men and women who served in our military and all the sacrifices that they've made. Who's, if I may say it this way, many of whom whose bodies have been burned and it is love that has compelled you to give this place away. That is what Christianity looks like, if I can say it that way. And I know how uncomfortable I'm making you right now. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. That love compels us to do things that don't make sense. But they're motivated by allowing God's love to shade everything we do, our possessions and our entire lives. I, I'm sort of a history lover. And during the Protestant Reformation, the country of England kept going from a a Protestant king or queen to a Catholic king or queen, and then they would go back. And every time the the lead would change, uh, people would get burned alive for heresy. And it didn't matter uh, which authority was in power, uh, they would just burn people uh, for their faith. It's actually what populated this country, was, was literally England burning people alive for their religious beliefs. And you see things in our Bill of Rights, like there's, we, we don't allow cruel and unusual punishment. That's all thanks to English kings and their ways of punishing heresy. Um, there was a guy, sorry, I love this story. There was a guy named Hugh Latimer. He was a pastor, and he wasn't a very um, eloquent or notable person, except that he was known by his 
people that, that hung around him as just being deeply, profoundly loving. And uh, I think, I'm not sure which queen it was, I think it was Henry VIII's daughter Mary who came to power. Uh, she was the third of his children to take the throne, if I'm not mistaken, and, or maybe the fourth, because I think one reigned for like six days. Yeah, queen, no, that was a different Mary. Different Mary, sorry. But um, this was Mary Tudor, and uh, she, her mother was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella who sent Columbus from Spain to discover the New World. She was profoundly Catholic, and she was a little bit upset that her father had um, left the Catholic Church to divorce her mother, and so she made England Catholic again, and this pastor named Hugh Latimer was arrested for being a Protestant, and he refused to say, okay, I'll convert to Catholicism, which was the most common response to being arrested for heresy at that time in England. Um, and he was burned alive with another pastor. They were, they were co-sentenced. And he said to his fellow pastor as the flames were being lit, he said, today <clears throat> we light a fire that will never go out. I think I would have just been screaming, right? I mean, um, and everybody who witnessed his death said that it was the most peaceful thing they'd ever seen, that love completely defined this man. It was all he cared about. And so I cannot imagine how significant these words would have been to him on that day and to all who knew him beyond that day. Love must be the main thing in our hearts and our lives. And as we make love the main thing, we are to make love the main way, the main pathway through which we relate to others. This takes us into verses 4 through 7. You will notice that Paul gives two positive descriptions of what love is, and then he goes into a fairly long list of things that love is not, and then he folds back in verse 7, or at the end of verse 6, really, and then into verse 7 with more descriptions of what love is in a positive sense. So we're going to look at those uh, two aspects of love. We are to cultivate selflessness. To get our hearts, our desires, out of God's way. To be more patient and more kind. We could stop there and you would have one whopper of a homework assignment. Go out this week, be more patient, and more kind. Okay? That's not even doable. <laughs> I mean, maybe I could be a little more in each of those categories. But Paul doesn't stop there. He 
unrolls from these positive attributes of what it means to love into a very long list that if I can just summarize it in one word, I would say that we are to develop humility. Love is humility. How does he define this? Well, it does not envy, boast, it's not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So, I don't know about you, but when I read through that list, there are certain pairs of words that just cut me to the core. That I cannot be irritable or resentful, for example. Um, I'm getting older. It's easy to be irritable. Like there's more pain in this body than there used to be. And it's easy. So there's this long list of what it means to be humble as we love. Making love the main way means that we, we need less of us in God's way. And as we cultivate selflessness, we also are called to cultivate perseverance. This is the bigger part of love. When life breaks down, God wants us to be able to look beyond the now, to literally bear all things, to believe all things, to hope all things, to endure all things. God has said, my love overcame your sin and the grave in order to prove to you that there is hope, that there is grace and forgiveness and hope eternal. And so the love that I want you to express in your life is really a call to cultivate perseverance, to push through and look beyond, to endure wrongdoing, and to believe in others. This is really hard to do. In fact, I would argue it's, it's impossible for us to do in our own strength and capability. If you've ever tried to love someone who keeps doing the same stupid stuff over and over and over again, you learn not to believe in that person. And what God is saying is look past the now to a future, the potential that someone has. See that in them. Believe all things. Endure all things. And so, as we make love the main thing and we make it the main way, we're to make love the main idea that shapes who we are. 
We are to adopt God's eternal perspective for ourselves to see this world through the lens of love, to remember that love will outlast everything else. All of it's, you know, it's an interesting list in verses 1 through 3 of language and prophetic understanding, mystery, knowledge, faith, sacrifice of all kinds. But then he comes back at the end here and says, all of those things will fade. But love will endure forever. Those are happy. Those are happy kids you're hearing. Um, okay. We must adopt God's perspective to understand that love will outlast everything else in this universe. And love will lead us to wholeness. Um, I'm going to parse a couple of words in here for you. Got to find them first. So in verse 10, he says, When the perfect comes, what, the way to understand that is when we are complete, when we are whole, and redeemed and fully in the presence of God for eternity, at that point, everything will become clear. Right now, it's like looking into a mirror that's fogged over. We get a general understanding of who God is, of what love is all about. But when we come into His presence for eternity, the fog clears we turn away from the mirror and we look directly into the eyes of God. We see him face to face. That clarity, that clear understanding and wholeness is what is ours in Christ. And we can look toward that now. We can see with that perspective, love will lead us to wholeness to fully know as we are already fully known. I don't know about you, but it always makes me uncomfortable to know that God fully knows me. You don't fully know me, or you wouldn't listen to me preach. And I don't fully know you, or I wouldn't bother preaching. We are already fully known. And God says, I don't care about all the stuff you're trying to hide. Well, I care about it. But that's not what defines my relationship with you. Love is what compels me to you. And I can overlook anything. Well, he's not really overlooking it because his son actually took it and handled it. And was the propitiation for our sins. He settled the account through his death. And so, we must adopt this eternal perspective that we have access right now to the one thing that will endure forever, the love of God through Jesus Christ. And as we adopt God's eternal perspective, we are to adopt his top priorities 
we are to have faith in Christ. This matters. It's what grants us access to love, to God's love. We are to have hope in Christ. We are to see what he did for us and how he was raised from the dead, and we are to know that there is so much more beyond what's here and now. And so, yes, we are to have faith in Christ. We are to have hope in Christ. But more than everything else in the universe, we are to know that nothing is stronger than God's love for us through Jesus Christ. This is the one thing that the Bible tells us will outlast everything else. It is the strongest force in the universe. And if it can draw me out of my uh, self-centered mire towards the cross of Jesus Christ, it is more powerful than any of us can comprehend. And so, while this was originally written as a rebuke, to a group of people who did not know how to love very well. It's much more than that. Paul taps into something so deep and so true that we all need to be drawn back to this simple truth. God loves you. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we are humbled by your love that you would choose to pour out a sacrifice so profound for people who were so broken. And Father, we confess to you that we are not perfect. We are sinful people. Even when we stumble into something that's right and good, we are in need of your grace and love. So Lord, we give you all of our sins, and we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for your church here at Hope and around the world, we ask that we would show your love. Drill down into the core of who we are and release our sins and the burdens we carry that we might be free in Christ to worship you and to love you and others. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son. We pray that we would show his love to everyone in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen.